Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are transforming our futures and doing so generally for the better. I mean, hey, don't at me here, Ted Kaczynski. Contra Kaczynski and other primitivist anti-tech advocates who think of tech as another system of government and corporate control over a complacent, sheep-like citizenry. Today, we're going to talk about the ways that tech enables civil disobedience and can provide a check on state power through entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and Will Duffield and I are joined in the studio by Adam Thier, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. Okay, so to start us off, um, you've written a book, Permissionless Innovation, a few years ago now. You have a new book kind of in process, getting ready to come out later this year, I think, um, where you're you're, you're coining this concept called evasive entrepreneurialism. Can you explain what do you mean by that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So just for the record, I didn't coin either the term permissionless innovation or evasive okay. entrepreneurialism. But <laughs> we'll I, give you credit anyways. <laughs> I, I, I'll take some credit for helping to popularize both terms, hopefully. Uh, basically, evasive entrepreneurs are people that put the idea of permissionless innovation into action uh, in the marketplace uh, and in government processes. They basically go out and make part of their business model the idea of changing policy through their marketplace activities. Um, the sort of paradigmatic example would be the, ser- the sharing economy, Uber and Airbnb. But that just really scratches the surface of innovators who went out with a desire to actually push up against the margins of law and regulation with the express intent of trying to change those rules. And part of the reason that they did that was probably a, based on a calculus that going through traditional policy avenues or political means of changing law was not going to get them very far. And so behaving, quote unquote, evasively in the marketplace by doing an end run around rules and regulations was essentially the only resort left after years and years of trying other means of changing policy to open up markets and remove barriers to entry. Hmm. Now, so you mentioned the sharing economy and folks who are familiar with Uber and Lyft and their battle with the taxi cab medallion system. Um, are going to be familiar with the idea of, okay, look, it's we have tech companies that move fast, break things, and then later on, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, I, I am wondering to what extent this is true of the tech sector more generally. I mean, to what extent is evasive entrepreneurialism just been the norm ever since the 70s, since the rise of Silicon Valley, since the kind of new modern tech sector? Well, it totally is context specific and depends upon where you sit. Um, If you are in a sector that has been exposed to a a heavy amount of regulation traditionally, like aviation and transportation um, or communications and so on and so forth, you're probably in a sector that I like to call born captive or born in captivity, um, as opposed to a sector that is born free, uh, a sector that basically uh, has come about in a relatively open and flexible policy environment. So for example, right now today, something like robotics and AI or 3D printing, we don't have a federal robotics administration yet. Uh, <laughs> right. We don't have a, uh, a national 3D printing uh, statute or commission or whatever else. These are technologies that are benefiting from the fact that they are to some extent born free. And so permissionless innovation clearly is going to work better in sort of born free sectors than born in captivity ones. This is the great problem right now for something like autonomous vehicles, right, or supersonic transport and commercial drones. Those are technologies that are born into sort of a captivity of uh, federal and state and international regulators that want to pigeonhole this new technology into a very uh, old regulatory uh, regime or paradigm. 
And that is where you see permissionless innovation really strained. Although in some cases, like for the internet itself and for a sharing economy, it worked. Those are sectors that were heavily regulated. And let's not forget the government had a heavy hand in helping to create the internet. And yet once it was commercialized, people were able to break out of that captivity and go a different path. Likewise, uh, with the sharing economy, transportation heavily regulated, Uber and Lyft able to get out of it. How does the concept of evasive entrepreneurship interact with the traditional venture capital funding model? Mm -hmm. um, how do investors approach someone who brings them an idea to perhaps break the law in order to bring their product to market? Yeah. Well, it's something uh, – it's a, a calculated form of regulatory risk that is modeled into VC models when they uh, have a company approach them asking for money. So much so that many VCs are now hiring general counsels who basically take a look at business plans for forms of not only technological and market risk but also regulatory risk mm -hmm. and then advise those companies before they start up how they might want to approach this. There's actually been books written about this recently. There's a new book uh, that's related to what I'm writing about here, but from a business approach called Regulatory Hacking by Edmund Burfield that discusses like strategies like this for new ventures. Uh, and another book called The Fixer by Bradley Tusk, who was an advisor to Uber and other sort of disruptors uh, in their fights. So now we're starting to talk about evasiveness as essentially a business strategy and one that's factored in from the start by VCs and other investors uh, before they make uh, their plays. Hmm. Well, now, so there, there's going to be – I think our listeners are going to be broadly sympathetic to the idea of skirting ill-advised regulations that are outdated, don't don't actually do a very good job of, of protecting or of doing what they were meant to do. I mean because if you have a set of rules that were crafted, say, 30 years ago before an entire uh, field or sector – was even imagined, well, there's going to be an odd fit. So our listeners are going to be broadly sympathetic with the concept. There are those who are going to feel a bit concerned, I suspect, over accepting risk. So like when we talk about, uh, you know, um, in fact, here, why don't you flesh out this idea of permissionless innovation versus the precautionary principle? Um, and, and, and then we'll get into some of those concerns. So when we talk about precautionary principle, sure. what is that? Yeah, the precautionary principle is something that flowed out of the field of uh, environmental law and food and drug regulation. Basically, the idea that it's better to be safe than sorry and to set up preemptive anticipatory forms of governance that will restrict new forms of innovation and entrepreneurialism until such time as those innovators can prove to public policymakers that their new creations are not going to bring any harm or risk to society, whatever the baseline may be. Um, there are good reasons why many regulations exist in a precautionary cast, but there are many bad reasons for that precautionary principle has governed technologies to the point of eliminating them or greatly retarding their uh, release into society that could have had beneficial effects. We see this every day with a lot of food and drug regulations, which are probably the most heavy-handed precautionary regulations in, in America, if not the world. And it does hold back many important types of life-enriching or life-saving drugs and medical devices. So much so that some of the case studies I go through in my book are about evasive entrepreneurs saying, wait a minute, we've got a better drug or device to change the world. Why don't you let us do this? And some of those devices obviously entail significant risk. And this is the tension that we face today. A case study in that, I've spent the past week trying to find new contacts without actually making an appointment with an optometrist. Hmm. And there, despite contacts being a medical device, 
there are now legal online sellers who will attempt at least to run you through an eye exam in your room. Right. Um, hold a card <laughs> up to the screen, stand back 15 feet and right. on. Um, but they have managed to shake up what it is to go through mm-hmm. pre-review before being issued contacts, the danger of getting the wrong contacts. I, I can't really see. Um, I mean, you wouldn't right. be able to see either, but that's all. <laughs> Literally. Um, right. Well, that's a great example. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing I read about in the book. And let me give you a couple of other examples just to tee up a broader discussion that involve medical devices or drugs. Um, there are people right now today utilizing 3D printers to make things like prosthetic limbs for children with limb deficiencies or even do like orthodontic works to have uh, orthodontic work on their own to basically have their own Invisaligns. Um, because they can't afford one or don't want to wait for a regulatory process. There are average dads and, and parents that have come together to, to code new types of insulin pumps for their children that work better than uh, on-the-shelf regulated devices. Now, in all of these cases, these are not only forms of evasive entrepreneurialism, but they are forms of social entrepreneurialism or user or household-based innovation. What's interesting about these case studies I've just identified is that a lot of these people aren't doing it for money. They're just doing it because they have new technological capabilities. We might even call them sort of technologies of resistance or technologies of freedom that basically allow them to express their own will or live a life of their own choosing. And so now they can go out and do this in combination with others, utilizing the sort of new decentralized, democratized technological capabilities at their disposal. Now, let's be clear. There's risks associated with these things. The case study involving uh, uh, Amos Dudley that I talk about in the book, who was a, a teenager who decided because his mom couldn't afford Invisalign for him to actually use a 3D printer available at like a local school to create his own Invisalign brace work. And then he wrote up all of his blueprints and plans and put them online and said, look, I did it. And it was sort of like a stick it to the man moment, more to like the makers of Invisalign than to the FDA, but really to both of them in a way. But a lot of people came out, a lot of orthodontists and said, this is horrible. (laughs) If kids start trying to make their own brace work, they'll really screw up their teeth. And you know what? They're right. This wasn't just about them protecting their own butts, although there probably was a little bit to that. But the orthodontists were making a very heartfelt, important point that all technologies involve risks and trade-offs. And so when people have these capabilities, it's both a a wonderful thing and it's sometimes a scary thing. But that doesn't mean it's going to stop. And and it does seem, regardless of whether people use it wisely or unwisely, to stand as a rebuttal to the neo-primitivist concern that this technology is out of our hands because these people, in particular the, in, the insulin pump example you mentioned, that's someone really taking back control Absolutely. over a piece of technology that – was regulated by a, a far-off corporate entity previously. Not, not only taking control over it, but improving it. What those dads did, and this is part of the, uh, something called the Night Scout Foundation. Uh, it was originally started by some dads who were just average coders who used old insulin pump technology and then recoded it to make it better, to have better real-time insulin monitoring for their children who had diabetes, and then also deliver uh, insulin in a, in, a, in a superior fashion. When the FDA caught wind of this, they're like, who, who is your leader? Take us to your leader. And like, who's in control? They're like, no, 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 we're not doing this for money. This is all sort of charitable, voluntary, bottom-up, open source kind of based work. And we work as a collaborative community to like create a more democratized, more affordable type of technology. You know, what's the FDA supposed to say about that? Right? Their, their, their purpose has always been to regulate big pocketed, big pharma kind of type companies, right? They don't exist here. 
We live in a new decentralized world. Now, I'm not here to suggest that all drug and medical devices are going to be, deli- you know, put together, cobbled together by dads working in their basements going <laughs> right, forward. Right? No, and the kind of cascade environmental risks you may have when you move to, say, printing, putting molecules together right. to make new substances grows tremendously. Obviously, there's a real yeah. danger there. But, and we should be concerned about you – know, I mean, it's easy to be sympathetic with dads doing it for free for their own kids. But we should also – that is not necessarily inherently – ethically superior to a startup company trying to do the same thing right. for a profit. Right. In both cases, it spreads a benefit that is right now shut off to the broader. Yeah, th- that's right. And what this really reflects is that we live in this world, as I've already said, a more decentralized, democratized technological innovation that's driven by the so-called pacing problem. The idea that technology is increasingly moving faster than the ability of law and regulation to keep up. And there are a lot of people like, ah, the hell with the pacing problem. You're just a technological determinist and you're trying to make an argument that like technology, you know, railroads over everything and it doesn't – it can't be stopped. No, that's not the the case. I understand with enough exertion of force and coercion, government can stop almost anything. But the costs of doing so are becoming incredibly high. It's becoming really, really difficult for regulators of all these emerging technologies to try to bottle up all the genies once they've been released from the bottle. And so we have to come up with a better governance approach to how to deal with these forms of evasiveness regardless of who's doing them. So on on the pacing problem and, and going through that element of your uh, introduction, I I see a different pacing problem vis-a-vis technology that adoption and particularly widespread adoption isn't happening fast enough Hmm. Um, and particularly the lag time between the initial innovation and the widespread adoption seems to be growing. Um, It's been argued that it has been. How does government regulation and attempts to solve the traditionally understood pacing problem influence that that lag time. Well, um, I think it depends on technology as to what the lag time is. I think for some technologies, the lag time is fairly short. I mean, you think about the rise of smartphone technologies and all the various types of interesting apps and capabilities that are built into smartphones now. That took off very quickly, just a decade ago, right? And, and exploded on the scenes. Now everybody walks around with a supercomputer in their pockets and purses. And in that case, all of the apps that wrote on top of those things have also correspondingly moved fairly quickly. Now, there are lag times associated with some types of devices because of the fear of liability or regulation that accompany them, right? But that hasn't stopped a lot of people from flooding app stores with various types of medical devices that are technically regulated medical devices. People don't realize it, but when they walk around with a smartphone, they're walking around with a medical device that is largely unregulated. The tracking features in it that just track your footsteps or your activity, that's technically regulated. The things you can use to like hold up to your eye that you talked about and, and do like remote uh, you know, medical advice, that's technically regulated. Um, you could go on down the line, but the point is, is that the, this is out of control and uh, out of the FDA's control to some extent. So much so that the FDA's had to basically curb their traditional precautionary approach to regulating a lot of these emerging technologies, not just smartphones, but 3D printers and so on and uh, so forth, social media uh, sites and Twitter, because they recognize the, the volume of activity and the pace of it is significant enough that they can't control it all. They're going to have to sort of pick and choose targets and come up with a different approach. I spent a lot of time in the book, and we could talk about this if you want, just talking about the emergence of new sort of adaptive, flexible, quote unquote, soft law governance mechanisms for these technologies. And in essence, government itself is behaving evasively and ignoring its own regulations. 
The FDA has rules and laws it's supposed to enforce. In some cases, it's like, yeah, we know that's technically legal, but let's talk about this. Let's have a, a multi-stakeholder process. Let's have a workshop. Let's have codes of conduct. Uh, come talk to us and we'll consult with you. That's not perfect, you know, permissionless innovation, but it's absolutely not the precautionary principle either. It's some messy amalgam in between that's not going to make anybody happy, but will be necessitated by the rise of these sort of technologies of uh, resistance. So, I mean, the, the smartphone and, and, and the whole ecosystem built upon the smartphone as a platform uh, is a great example. And it's an example of uh, a technology that's essentially born free. Um, whereas, you know, we have other other sectors what, what, like drones where since they're subject to tight FAA regulations – uh, they're they're born captive, and so that that pacing problem, the lag time is much much longer to the point where now startups go overseas to right. test their where drones. You, you have the knowledge, but the mass adoption is rendered out of reach right. by right. this regulatory. Right. And, and and everyone who I mean, all you have to do is turn on one of those congressional hearings about social media regulation to realize, oh, that this is partly why there's a pacing problem, and it, it's sometimes salutary. It's like almost a salutary neglect where. You don't want some of these lawmakers to be on the dot on some of these issues. The fact that it takes them so long to appreciate the significance of this technology means that tech can thrive in a born-free environment for longer and longer. Um, we had um, uh, Will Reinhardt from the American Action Forum come on the show, and uh, one, one of his solutions for this pacing problem was to have regulatory bodies hire more economists and tech experts. It was kind of a empower the technocracy approach um, that he was advocating. So, so what's your solution to the to the pacing problem? Well, it, that 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 sort of sort of staffing up with technologists or economists and and better educational approaches and sort of technological literacy. Absolutely, that that can help to some degree, but it is not going to give us a technological crystal ball such that we're all going to become Nostradamus and be able to predict the future. I mean, the reality is, is that so many of these technologies catch us by surprise. You know, they're disruptive. S some people call them seismic uh, innovations that, you know, shake up the entire ecosystem or landscape around us. I mean, we forget 15 years ago, people were saying, what are we going to do about the MySpace monopoly and the fact that Motorola controlled the entire cell phone market with Yahoo Nokia search. and Yahoo Search. And and literally in, in the middle of the last decade, the FTC rejected a merger between Blockbuster and Hollywood Video because of control <laughs> of video markets, right? That's how quickly in just 15 years the world has changed beneath us, right? And you think about other emerging technologies today that we've already discussed and, you know, 3D printers and everything else and, and, and Bitcoin, um, uh, Twitter. These things are all in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, dr commercial drones, you know, and, and driverless cars are, are now out there in real time proving themselves. And so this is a new world that we live in that changes very quickly. There's no amount of technological expertise that are going to be able to help us see that far ahead. Yeah. The best they can do is keep us sort of rough and ready to deal in a responsive way with these breakthrough uh, radical or seismic technologies. You've mentioned 3D printing a couple times as uh, a born-free technology, but in a sense, though, it is born-free everywhere its products are in chains uh, by <laughs> copyright. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that shaking down down the road? Um, will there be some clash between the printer itself as an open platform and the fact that what you are producing on it is 
an intellectual property of, of someone. Yeah, it, it already Maybe is a big deal. But, uh, um, there's already a case uh, – there's lots of cases involving 3D printed toys, for example, where copyright becomes an issue. Um, uh, and you can you can better believe that's going to expand. But I think the more problematic examples are how people using 3D printers to create various types of – not only medical devices, but in some cases weapons, obviously, that's going to raise even more concern among regulators. There's already been efforts by the State Department and some state law and local lawmakers to try to regulate 3D printed weapons. Um, so that's just one of many examples of like the risks associated with these things. And just wait till people start using 3D printers to make their own drones and then affixing weapons to them. There was already a kid who has a video of him uh, attaching a flamethrower to a drone and controlling it remotely with a smartphone. Uh, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> that terrifies me. But again, what do you want to do about it? Ban 3D printers? Ban phones? So, so far, the response has targeted the individual rather than right. trying to As force some firmware lock on the printer itself. As it I mean, the, the general but answer here is you go hold. after the bad actor, not the technology, right? Especially the more general purpose the technology, the more you don't want to try to single it out. 3D printing, like computing itself, is a general purpose technology, a, a generative one upon which many, many interesting types of innovations can be built. You would never want to single out one bad actor and their act and say, and therefore, we should ban all 3D printers and computers. You know, that's insanity. And yet that's what a, a lot of people sometimes suggest as a, as a solution. Well, we have a, you know, a, a Friedrich Bastiat style scene, which is seen that which is not seen problem, which is that the headlines are generated by the, the kid who prints a gun and prints a drone. And, you know, that, that yeah, gets the headlines. Panics. People don't notice the thousand times that someone used the 3D printer to print some beneficial, ordinary, everyday improvement. It's, right? a, it's a major thesis of, of all my work, especially my last book and my current one, that unfortunately, bad news sells. It sells better than good news. And techno panics are going to drive headlines and policy because that which we dread, we often regulate first. Yeah. The good news is, is that the pacing problem is sort of the great anecdote to that in a sense because people push back and technology moves fast. And in some cases, they'll just leave your jurisdiction. You know, we have the a new world of sort of innovation arbitrage where people will move around to whatever jurisdictions treat their innovations most hospitably. And so those are good countervailing forces that give us a form of sort of voice and exit, if you will. We can sort of say, hey, we've got a good alternative to, to provide you. Can we do this? And if that doesn't work, we say, okay, then we're out of here. We're just going to go offer it to somebody else who's interested in it. This actually prompted this episode. Uh, it, uh, we, I was tweeting the other day and we interacted online. Um, I was speaking about the coming – I, I predicted the coming decline of the American tech sector. Um, the next Silicon Valley won't be in Silicon Valley um, because of a variety of, of – um, Poor regulation on, on multiple levels, federal, down the state, down the local. Um, now, you've been looking at the tech at the tech industry for a lot longer than either of us have. You've been doing it for more than a decade now. Um, have you seen that in your time? Like, how have you seen – have you seen a shift, uh, this voice and exit as companies start to abandon – California or even the U.S. more generally? I've seen it selectively, but not generally. Okay. So generally speaking, the problem with the idea that, you know, there'll be another Silicon Valley in some other country or continent, um, it, it could be the case. But generally speaking, it's probably not true if for no other reason than those countries or continents are regulating technologies just about as aggressively yeah, everywhere as everywhere else is getting worse yeah. faster yeah. than we are. Right? We might We're not be moving in a, a good Silicon direction in Europe, but, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. not with GDPR and the copyright directive and other things like that. And you could say, well, China is attracting a lot of uh, investment 
and innovation. They certainly are, but they also have still a totalitarian structure that is going to discourage people from relocating there. Right? And why not just be based in the U.S. and test your driverless cars in China? Which and, is and what that's folks what's are doing. happening. Yeah. So yeah. basically, you have a more selective, targeted way of exit, right? And innovation is ha- happening at the margin with things like driverless cars and drones and genetic testing, where someone like Amazon will go and do their testing of drones over in Canada or Australia or even the UK. Um, Genetic testing is obviously uh, more active and taking off more in China and some Asian countries than it is in other ones for no other reason than the ethical laws are a little bit – principles are a little more lax there for better or for worse. And so what you see is at the margin this sort of thing happening. And what's interesting about it when we talk about innovation arbitrage, it's not just about innovators or companies you know, shopping around or looking around for better opportunities. It's about individuals doing it too. I mean, it's going to be easier than ever for individuals to engage in medical tourism going forward, again, for better or for worse. There are already people who go to the Ukraine to do three-parent babies, uh, and that's illegal here in the United States. There are people like Kobe Bryant who went to Germany to get a special type of therapy or treatment for his knee that wasn't available in the United States. Now, that's Kobe Bryant. He's a rich man. Well, that's he what I was going to ask. Going does to this present an access concern, it is an particularly access concern. if we accept this model where right. we won't push hard to open up our laws right. because, well, you can go to Switzerland and do it. So that's yeah, good that's enough. that's not optimal, right? We don't want people to have to do that kind of thing. We want them to have it right here. We want it to be safe because let's be clear, a lot of that sort of like innovation arbitrage and the individualized form could be engaging in fly-by-night kind of like treatments that we don't really want people to engage in. You know, I don't want to go down to the Caribbean to get a heart operation if I can get it in New York City or D.C., right? So the reality is, is that there are those risks associated with that. Hopefully, regulators and policymakers understand that and try to reform our policies to become more responsive to the needs of the people. Let's talk a bit about uh, technological civil disobedience. We we referenced it a little bit earlier here. And my understanding is that the new book kind of shifts focus a bit, that permissionless innovation focused on the ways in which um, innovation can improve life, can create wealth, can lead to uh, broader health and prosperity. This book focuses on entrepreneurship as a check on state excess, excess. Um, where do you see the kind of the, the front line in technological civil disobedience at the moment and then going forward the next couple of years? Well, when I talk about technological civil disobedience, it's important to realize, you know, there's sort of very uh, specific uh, forms of it that are absolutely clear cut civil disobedience. And then there's a more gen- uh, generic type of, of disobedience that I'm really talking about in the book. Clearly, with the more targeted type, you can find examples of people utilizing smartphones and, and, and various types of digital technologies to push back against governments across Putting the Putting Wikipedia all the time. on IPFS when Turkey shut it down. Yeah, right. So there's all sorts of interesting ways to utilize technologies as a direct form of disobedience. Um, uh, in the, I mean, there's a wonderful case I have in the book I'd involved overseas about women using drones to deliver contraceptives in Ireland because it was illegal. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, and Catholic Church, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was, it was you know, like kind they, of a stunt, but it worked. But it worked, did right? it, you know? Yeah. And obviously, that probably isn't going to scale up. Right, but right. think about how people use drones here to cover protests in Ferguson, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
the race riots in Ferguson, and then the pipeline protests. Right? Uh, and how scary these new police powers to unilaterally take down drones are then right. from a speech stand. So there's that give and take, that back and forth between you know resistance and the state, right? That's an interesting tension, and I argue in some ways a beneficial one. We have these new technologies of resistance to push back, and this leads to a broadening of the thesis or the idea of civil disobedience or technologically enabled disobedience. When I talk about sort of innovation as a form of checks and balances or sort of uh, innovation is like mini revolts or mini revolutions at the margin, right? That's what really matters. I mean, it, we're not doing what Jefferson wanted, like every 20 years we're going to come up and have a big revolution uh, up in government. No, it's like small little acts of chipping away at state power, or at least checking the state's worst tendencies. And I'm not arguing those are going to completely change government overnight. But in a day and age where traditional checks and balances have become more limited in effectiveness, in some cases, innovation becomes a very positive alternative to that. I mean, just return to the sharing economy story. I mean, for the better part of about seven decades, economists and political scientists had documented how – what is just a complete failure traditional transportation and hospitality regulations were in terms of the burden on consumer welfare. It got us nowhere. We did nothing to reform those laws and taxes. Along comes Uber and Airbnb and almost overnight, they completely upend the entire system. Right? That was a check and balance on the worst tendencies of protectionist, stodgy, croniest local governments to license, tax, and regulate industries mostly on the behalf of incumbent industries. Right? We couldn't get anything done about that despite all of our best efforts in the democratic process. And everybody agrees on the left and right that those occupational licenses and other regulations have generally speaking not helped consumers. What did it take? It took technologically enabled forms of disobedience to get us there. And then we started having an honest conversation at the bargaining table, right? So this is what I mean in the book when I talk about like it's always easy to judge innovative acts of sort of technological disobedience ex post and say, isn't it great that we've got this now? If you would have asked that ex ante, like what do you think about this company coming into this market today in 2010 called Uber or Lyft or Airbnb and trying to disrupt people? Oh, no, they must obey the law, yeah, right? right? <laughs> and so whenever I go to a, a classroom of philosophy students or like legal ethicists, I always ask those questions like how many of you stayed in an Airbnb recently or used an Uber lately, right? And all the hands go up and I'm like, you're all lawbreakers, damn you. Yeah. What, where's your ethics? Not a Kantian in the room. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's like there's a certain moral hypocrisy almost associated with how we the public want and utilize those technologies that are brought to us through these little mini acts of revolt, if you will. I mean, I'll put my historian's hat on for a moment and your description of mini revolutions or slow motion revolt that you reference in your book. Um, it reminds me of the the literature that's become popular over the last like 30 years on, on um, slave resistance mm -hmm. and antebellum slavery, that rather than focusing solely on resistance to a regime in large scale revolts, Nat Turner, Stono, Rebellion, et cetera. Uh, we should look for day-to-day -day ways in which slaves pushed back in small ways against systems of control. And so, so it's a different situation. But in that general sense, looking for ways in which ordinary consumers using uh, new tech um, – are pushing back against both government and even sometimes corporate control. I mean, it's a really interesting idea. So you, you've talked about Airbnb, you've talked about Uber and Lyft. So every time someone opens their app and orders an Uber, they were breaking the law a little bit. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Um, what, what are some other examples that so we're the, that we're after the fact there? So it's easy to look back and see that. Where do you see that right now? Something we're still 
you know, we're still in right. front of. Well, pretty much everything in the world of cryptocurrency land is probably butting up against some sort of financial regulation, either domestically or internationally. Uh, we talked about drones already and how they're being utilized in both uh, small and big ways to like push back against governments, you know, to, to film a protest or to film p police abuse or something like that. Um, even mundane things. I mean, the field of drone photography at weddings has become a huge thing. And they're like people who do it professionally. And then there's like the drunk uncle who just pulls his drone out of the car and like, <laughs> yeah, right. like let me take a picture of this party party. <laughs> and what's interesting, of course, is that those two things are regulated completely differently. Uh, it, Instagram advertising. It, I yeah, mean, not sure. legal in any real sense. All those influencers um, right. promoting products, perhaps without disclosing Hashtag that they've done Firefest. so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, and, then, and then there's that's the field a, of, uh, of food entrepreneurialism, which has really exploded in recent years with people you know, cooking things in their own home and selling them or, or just giving them away. People using food trucks, obviously, all around the Cato Institute here, we see food trucks uh, surrounding us. They're all interesting ways that people are like revolutionizing one of the oldest sectors in the world, agriculture and food, right? Um, again, there are laws that make a lot of this stuff illegal, but it's happening anyway at the margins. Um, it, again, it's that sort of marginal strike, if you will, <coughs> against the, the, the worst impulses of the regulatory state or its worst excesses that ultimately in, my, in, in the book, I hope will help us recalibrate, find a new, better equilibrium for governance. I do not suggest that I'm, I'm, I'm not writing an, a crypto anarchist manifesto in this book. A lot of my libertarian friends will be very disappointed at my moderation, if you will, for a book that has evasive entrepreneurialism and technological civil disobedience in the title or subtitle. The, the reality is, though, is that I think even people uh, who would identify as progressive and, and to the left would say that there are moments in time where people utilizing technologies to express themselves, live a life of their own choosing or sort of have a, a freedom to choose new and different ways of, of like improving their lives is ultimately something that everybody should be agreeing upon, right? So what then if we've we aren't using the precautionary principle, what do we use to determine which technologies we should give a free rein to and which might because of their cascading potential effects right. um still be be born captive. Yeah, well th this is the great challenge. So, you know, there's still is a serious amount of so-called technological risk associated with all types of innovation. The reality is, is that a lot of regulations were put in place with the very best of intentions to prevent worst case scenarios from developing. The problem is in the process, they prevented a great number of best case scenarios from coming about. We want to try to recalibrate and try to find a way to identify what's the corner case that could actually bring serious harm to public, to, to public and the individuals uh, that, that utilize these technologies but allow for all the other beneficial ones, right? So the problem with the precautionary principle is it's too blunt of an instrument to do that. It just basically shuts down all the innovation. Instead, we want to have a more selective uh, approach, a more flexible approach. And in some cases, we can get it through sort of waivers and different types of guidances from government agencies. And they've been selective about sort of softly deregulating at the margin. But that's now expanded greatly because of the pacing problem and all these new technologies we're talking about. And so what's happening, and I've been documenting this in my recent law review articles and then most recently now in my new book, is we see the emergence of an entirely new governance regime for these technologies. And for lack of a better term, I use the term soft soft law to describe it. And soft law is this, again, a messy uh, amalgam of a lot of different types of governance mechanisms from multi-stakeholder processes to agency uh, guidances to codes of conducts to workshops to best practices, uh, self-regulation, uh, standards, so on and so forth. 
these have always been tapped and utilized in various instances. But increasingly, as I've argued in this book and in my most recent law review article, this is the dominant uh, modus operandi of our, of our times. This is where we're at now. And a lot of people on the left and on the right hate it. They want bright line by the book kind of approaches. The liberals will say, we got to crack down harder and go by the book. The conservatives say, we got to have the rule of law and go by the book. And what I'm saying is that, do you want innovation or not? Because going by the book in either direction ultimately probably isn't going to get us the life's enriching, life-saving innovations that we can through a more flexible, adaptive sort of entrepreneurial form of governance, if it, you will. Is there a concern that that sort of soft law style creates new incumbent advantages, just the ability to navigate this system, to understand or maybe personally know the actors involved. Well, well that problem already exists, right? The problem of regulatory capture and, and, and industry influence of traditional by-the-book regulatory processes or what we might just call hard law has always been a chronic problem. In the world of soft law, the hope would be that you can actually have a more truly democratic, more representative, multi-stakeholder kind of approach with a lot of people sitting at the table uh, and discussing like concerns and finding better, more flexible ways of working these things out. It's not perfect. It's still potentially susceptible to uh, influence problems. It's actually the bigger critique of that sort of approach would be how arbitrary it could be, right? I mean, what is the law? This is a fundamental sort of metaphysical question, right, uh, that political scientists and philosophers study. And usually it's something that is very clear, well-enforced, well-established, has legitimacy. What I argue in my book, it's probably the most controversial part of it, is that a lot of our traditional regulatory processes in government itself have simply lost legitimacy with the public. So much so that this evasiveness is now running rampant because people are like, this law is crazy. It's stupid. I just want to help my kid who needs a better insulin pump. I want to help my child who's got a, a limb deficiency. I want to help uh, somebody far off to, to better understand the world or improve their lives. What's wrong with that, right? And so when law defies common sense, it starts to betray the consent of the governed and the idea that we have a truly representative democracy. And so technology becomes that check. And then you have to recalibrate government and soft law becomes sort of the messiest but easiest available way to and, do it. And as throughout this process, Uber gains a countervailing legitimacy of its own simply in making rides easier. Right. Um, that the appreciation of that consumer benefit gives them some stool to stand on. There. We had one of our uh, authors – uh, just wrote about uh, the Zug Valley in Switzerland, in Crypto Valley, as yeah. it's called. And one of the things he highlighted, I, I asked him, hey, can you write about why why the Zug Valley, why Switzerland in particular? And he actually pointed to multi-stakeholder soft law processes right. that they have this long tradition because of uh, the kind of fundamental decentralization of living in mountain valleys right. that in Switzerland of regulators having close relationship. They, they pass these ambiguous the ambiguous principles right. rather than tight, you know, strict bright line laws. Right. And then within the canton, yeah, they, they they get together and they talk. How are we going to actually apply these principles in a particular use case? Right. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, there's yeah, – th Yeah, this is the difference between process-driven uh, regulation and results-driven innovation. I mean, w if regulators were smart, what they do in this new uh, fast-paced emerging technology world is they say like, look, we have some basic public health and safety goals. We don't want to see people die from this sort of product or we want to see a cleaner environment or we want to see this. Here's the baseline. Here's a framework. Um, but we're not going to specify exactly how you get there. 
And there have been efforts by government to do this, but the problem is they traditionally have fallen apart. Um, that for whatever reason, either somebody in Congress doesn't like it or, or somebody in industry doesn't like it. But the reality is, is that what with these new emerging technology capabilities, you don't have any choice. Yeah. That's really the, – that's the only way you're going to be able to deal with these sort of public policy goals is to set broad overarching goals and say, OK, how, you figure out how to best get there. And it could be through a, a number of different ways. Now, the question is at the end of the day – how does that jive with like traditional regulatory regimes and will they have to go? I mean the Boeing case we're, we're dealing with right now about like how do you deal with the fact we have very specific rules yeah. for jumbo jets, right? Yeah. It, should we give Boeing more flexibility? Well, they actually did have some flexibility within the current process, which generally is good. But now people are questioning and say we need to pull back on that. Right. We need to go by the books. Well, here's what by the books means. The, the Boeing Dreamliner took by the FAA's own accounting – Eight years and over 100,000 hours of staff time to approve. Now, what happened in those eight years? Older planes were flying that probably weren't as safe, right? So the hope is that you get new and better innovations out there as quickly as possible within the broad confines of overarching public safety values or, or, or objectives, right? And I think we can get there through this sort of soft law kind of approach but people are going to have to give on all sides to to find that sort of better equilibrium. Right. Okay. So uh, I thought we'd play a little game here towards the end. Uh, you're at Mercatus. You're rubbing shoulders with uh, Tyler Cowen, who, for our listeners who don't know, is a kind of a, become a public intellectual. From yeah, you know, it's a bit of a surprise. He was an economist for for decades, and now he's suddenly become this this popular voice and food the, reviewer and food reviewer. Yeah, I shouldn't forget that um, opera reviewer. I mean, he seriously the guy's range. Um, but he plays this game on this show with all of his guests called overrated and underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought we would do that here today. And now for our listeners, rules: uh, it's not good or bad. It's over or under. So this, you know, when you make a statement here, it's not going to be, I think this is a good thing or a bad thing. So, you know, our listeners bear that in mind. Uh, Take the terms whatever way you want, literally or uh, non-literally, with, you know, maybe a sentence or two explanation max. Uh, So, for example, you know, here at Cato, we're not huge fans of MMT uh, uh, as a a monetary theory, right? Um, But... It could be – you could say it's overrated because it's uh, not going to work. It's magical economic thinking. Or you can say it's underrated because it's still relatively uh, obscure to ordinary Americans and it's going to become a bigger deal politically going forward. Mm-hmm. So I can go either yeah, way. Sure. I get yeah. it. Right. Okay. So let me throw some things at you. The internet of things. <laughs> I think it's uh, sort of overrated in the short term but potentially massively underrated in the long. Okay. I, I really think there's great potential there but in the short term, people are overselling a lot of the capabilities. Mm. And we have yet to see where people will really demand for the internet of things. Interesting. How about a uh, bigger concept, creative destruction? Well, I'm, I'm – I don't know. If it, I think it's probably still underrated after all these years. <laughs> it certainly is one of the most important uh, concepts in the field of economics, and it's at the core of everything I write about. <laughs> so I hope it's underrated. Yeah. It's certainly underappreciated by some people, but uh, I, I still love creative destruction. Yeah, it's kind of a job security as long as it's yeah. – yeah. <laughs> uh, TED Talks. I think they're pretty massively overrated. It's it's basically just a bunch of BS sessions. It sounds like half of them are just snake oil salesmen trying to sell you a, a badly repackaged idea of some sort. Uh, housing supply is a limit on the growth of innovation hubs. Mm. I, I think that's an uh, underappreciated, underrated uh, fact that uh, clearly 
real estate and land policies and taxes uh, have a massive influence on innovation culture writ large. Here's a tough one, maybe. Uh, Tyler Cowen. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler is probably the most underrated restaurant critic of all time, <laughs> in my opinion. If you're not following uh, his guide to ethnic dining, you are missing out on one of the great things to read if you're a foodie. Uh, he's also underrated as a, as, a, as a colleague, more generally a scholar, a colleague. Uh, he's a great person to work with, a real inspiration, um, someone we have a lot more to learn from. And, and because of his prodigious output, we will never stop learning from it. <laughs> uh, here's one, uh, Twitter. Uh, I, I think Twitter is uh, really underrated in some ways as a news aggregation service. For me, it has become one-stop shopping to find all the news of the day. But it can be overrated if you get stuck in your own filter bubble. And I think that's the problem for a lot of people is that I intentionally try to diversify my Twitter feed to include a lot of voices and, and platforms that I probably otherwise wouldn't be ideologically aligned with. But it's become a wonderful way, an, an underrated way of, uh, of informing oneself about the day's news and events. That's good. Good answer. Um, let's go back to a tech. Uh, CRISPR. I, I think CRISPR is is clearly sort of uh, underrated and, and really probably going to become one of the most significant public health technologies and stories of our lifetimes. I mean, this and driverless cars to me will go down as the great public health achievement of our of our current lives because on a daily basis, more lives could probably be saved by getting humans out from behind the wheel of cars yeah. and then getting us better treatments early on through various types of genetic testing and modification. There are clearly risks that we need to appreciate, but uh, that is an underrated technology. State state use of it doesn't terrify you? Oh, absolutely it does. Like state use just, of guns terrifies just, me. State yeah, use yeah, of yeah, genetically uh, pacifying populations I, to prevent them from doing a, crime. That's a very legitimate problem. I mean, every technology has a corresponding dark side, right? And we have to have policies that limit that so that those technologies are not used in that fashion. Though even there, it's still underrated because if, even if it's a terrifying application, we're underrating how – uh, dramatic the sure, sure. I remember over and under over yeah. and under uh washington dc i'm gonna say washington dc is underrated i this has been my home for 25 years and uh i'm a midwestern boy and i hated the city when i first came to it and i've grown to really love this city and its culture and mostly its people because we're a town of nomads almost nobody is actually from washington dc and so you learn so much and experience so much from the people of D.C. like no other city in America, especially, again, with the food. <laughs> the, the immigrants in this area bring so many delicious types of cuisines to this, uh, this area, and I'm a, I'm a huge foodie. So uh, D.C. is underrated. And, of course, I'm not basing any of this on politics, which is a different yeah. – <laughs> Oh, it's, it's clearly nonpartisan. I think yeah. this is something that probably you and uh, – um, you and the, you know uh, um, uh, Stephen Miller would agree on. He's mm -hmm. clearly a fan of ethnic food, if not of ethnic people. Yeah. Um, now, uh, how about let's go to net neutrality. I think net neutrality is is clearly overrated as a regulatory concept, but underrated as a general technical concept. I mean, neutrality more generally is a really good overarching principle that we should instill within a lot of different technological settings. Of course, defining neutrality, neutrality is tricky, but net neutrality as a regulatory concept is massively overrated and massively oversaturates our technology news media. 
I mean, the amount of time and attention that people have devoted to the issue of net neutrality as a regulatory matter is absolutely absurd. I like uh, content agnostic mm. for uh, the the broader, yeah. more valuable understanding, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Take right. it up with Tim Wu. I suppose he he got the coin the phrase. <laughs> um, and last but not least, definitely not least, craft beer. <laughs> So I'm a massive beer guy. Uh, craft beer is massively underrated, even though a lot of people are obviously coming in into it now and finding it. Uh, I am, am engaged in my own form of evasive entrepreneurialism in the craft beer industry by basically subverting the traditional distribution system and getting all my beer through the underground. Basically, oh, yeah. I trade beer with people all over America and the world, in fact, uh, through the mail. And huh. this is technically illegal if you do it through USPS, but it's just a violation of contract if you do it through UPS or FedEx. Huh. But I basically go on and use new technologies uh, and social media sites uh, and our phones to basically communicate with people when new beers are released in far off cities and say, I'd be really interested in getting a four pack of that and a bottle of that. Would you like a four pack of this and a bottle of this from my local best breweries? And these are breweries. These are small craft breweries that do not sell out of market. They do not sell in stores. Everything's on premises. So I have to go and buy something at a a really good local brewery, he goes or she goes and buys it. And then we trade. It's all barter. Yeah. And so the, the, the legality of this is all really interesting and questionable because it's all, for the most part, barter. Um, but it, it reflects the fact that I believe craft beer is massively underrated and absolutely superior to most of what you can buy in a store. I always have thought um, – here at here at Cato, I think folks give Jimmy Carter a hard time as as a president for for not without reason, uh, but he's under. Here we go. I'll do my own. Jimmy <laughs> Carter underrated as a president because he was the the actual great deregulator, not actually ah, but he, it, it because... split the coalition between home brewers and home distillers. <laughs> if okay. if they'd held firm, if he hadn't given in then, perhaps we would have gotten to the point where we could have legalized it all in <laughs> one fell swoop. Oh, so he took, I don't know. He took the wind out of the sails. Yeah, because they're much more brewers than distillers. For and... our listeners who don't know, it's in during Carter's administration that they basically uh, allow craft brewing uh, to take place. I mean, so so this whole this, this idea that you get I don't know Uncle Ed's pale ale rather than everyone having to drink you know beer out of a can goes back to the late seventies. But your distilling point is well taken. And on that note, dear listener, uh, knock a few back for us. Uh, thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's been a and great time. Will I think you have something coming up here soon? Coming up on April seventeenth, we'll be hosting a book forum on Jeff Kossoff's Twenty Six Words That Created the Internet. It's a history of CDA two thirty. A bedrock intermediary liability protection that allows the internet to work. And we'll have John Samples, David Post, and Emma Lanzo coming in to discuss. Uh, come in, see us at the Institute at noon or tune in on the live stream. It'll be fun. Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.